This is the English dubbed episode of the Bugis of Indonesia. If you wish to listen to the version with the undubbed interview in Bahasa Indonesia, please select the episode marked No Dub in brackets. On Sulawesi, the third largest island of Indonesia, there resides three major ethnic groups. The most numerous of these groups is the Bugis, an Islamic community comprising of over six million Indonesian citizens. The Bugis are a politically engaged and historically influential community, with multiple Indonesian presidents having been ethnically Buganese. But what has drawn the attention of anthropologists, sociologists and queer researchers is something completely unique to the Bugis people. The Bugis recognise five genders and three sexes. We have arrived here in Jakarta to speak with a Bugis individual and women's rights worker and ask an important question. How does a five-gender, three-sex social system operate? And how has a changing world and a changing socio-political climate in Indonesia impacted the Buganese way of life? Welcome to episode 10 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. According to an array of anthropological writings, there is a belief in Bugis society that all five of their genders must coexist harmoniously for their community and for the wider world to be in balance. Of these five genders, some are recognisable from a Western perspective, whilst others are not. It's worth us breaking these genders down for a second so we can understand how this system differs from a Western gender binary within which gender and sex have long been synonymized. Makunrai is the closest to what we would consider to be a cisgender woman, a woman identifying with her assigned gender at birth. Urane is the male equivalent of this. However, it is important to remember that the parameters within which maleness and femaleness are defined are culturally subjective, so the terms man and woman should be considered a loose fit. Translation is an imperfect practice, even at the best of times. Chalabai is similar to a transgender woman, but not the same. This is an identity which leans towards androgyny, instead of being an individual assigned female at birth, who identifies as, and by extension is, a man. Comparatively, Chalalai is similar to a transgender man, but also not the same, with this element of androgyny coming into play as well. Bisu, the fifth of these terms, denotes an individual who is absolved and abstracted from maleness or femaleness. Many Bisu, but not all, are intersex. Intersex is an umbrella term, denoting any individuals with chromosomal variations such as XXY, XYY, XXXY, and so on, as well as other individuals with ambiguous primary or secondary sex characteristics. The intersex individuals most easily recognised at birth are those with ambiguous primary sex characteristics such as genitalia. As intersexuality exists in 1.7% of the world's population, that means over 1 in 100 of us is intersex, which is approximately the same occurrence rate as being a redhead. In the majority of cultures and countries around the world, 
Intersex individuals are assigned male or female at birth, despite not being male or female in sex, and have an F or M marker placed on their birth certificate incorrectly. However, the Bugis recognise this third sex, and as a consequence, these individuals are not expected to identify as any conception of male or female if that is not their true identity. Unfortunately, in this particular episode, we do not have the time to entirely unpack the issues surrounding intersex welfare, visibility, and the intersex rights movement, as we will in a later episode. But it's important to keep in mind how the Bugis can be upheld as an inclusive, progressive community in this regard. There is only so much I can tell you about what it means to live under a five-gender, three-sex social system which is why we will be going straight to our interviewee for this episode to learn more. Our interviewee, Pino, is Bugis, her father coming from Makassar, the capital of South Sulawesi, and her mother being Bugis. She identifies as Chalalai, and although she has been living in Jakarta on the island of Java for several years now, she was enthusiastic to tell me about what gender presentation and expression looks like within the Bugis community, who are found predominantly within South Sulawesi. She currently works for the National Commission, one of three major human rights organisations based in Indonesia, as part of their Violence Against Women programme. The following interview was conducted in Bahasa, Indonesia, so with the help of our fantastic interpreters, we will be dubbing over the interview in English. As stated at the beginning of this episode, an undubbed episode is also available for our Indonesian listeners. So, Pino, what can you tell me about how gender works in Bugis communities? In my community, I am ethnically Makassar Bugis person. Why do we mention the Bugis Makassar tribe? Because my father came from the Makassar culture and my mother came from the Bugis culture. Because in our place in South Sulawesi, there are four cultures that have developed and become the inheritance of each person living in South Sulawesi. Makassar, Bugis, Toraja and Mandar. So if we talk about gender diversity in Bugis, then it is our legacy that we have this variety of people whose expression is accepted in our culture. The culture does not reject the existence of gender diversity. For example, if I am a man born with a penis, then I grow up socially as a man, and I perform a male style or masculine style as my habit. But also in Bugis, it would be acceptable if I was a man who acted or expressed themselves like a woman. It would also be accepted if I was a woman born with a vagina who acted masculine. Our identities are not only recognized, but also named. A woman is Makunrai, a person who was born as a woman, but socially plays the role as a man or masculine person, is Chalalai. Then, if I was a male born with a penis and socially I acted masculine, then I'm Urane. But if I was a male, but socially I expressed and acted feminine, I am Chalabai. Those names are given, so they are not only recognized, but also they are named. Urane, Chalalai, Chalabai, Makunrai. People also say there is a fifth name, but this fifth name denotes gender diversity. It is a meta-gender category called Bisu. 
Bisu is not just a gender role, but also a chief of tradition, and it is much more recognized by my community in Bugis as a priest. Why? Because in almost all aspects of life, there is a tradition involved. So if I want to plant rice, I have to ask the Bisu to perform traditional rituals. So the rice that I want to plant will successfully grow and be eaten, consumed by both myself and my community in Bugis. But Bisu has another role, besides being a priest or traditional leader. They can not only perform as the male or female gender, but they must go beyond that, which we call metagender. That is because in gender there are power relations. When men are more powerful than women, that is a power dynamic that should not exist. Bisu cannot participate in these power relations, because they have to communicate with God, or a being who blesses this world, or Dewa. Because God or Dewa only accepts people who do not participate in these power relations as male or female or something else, Bisu must let go of the power and identity attached to sex or gender roles. Fantastic, thank you. So, to go on to my next question, do you feel like there have been changes to Bugis gender expression because of outside cultural influences? Maybe, because there is the influence of political power in Indonesia that meant that the gender diversity taking place in Bugis was not known about for generations. Because there was a period where this practice was abolished for 30 years, one regime came to power in Indonesia, the Sohata regime. This kind of practice has begun to be eliminated because it is considered unacceptable by one of the major political forces. But that is only politics, not because of culture, only politics. But in some cultures, the role of bisu, for example, is still used. The terms chalalai and chalabai are still used in Bugis, but then they are difficult to present in the economic or cultural context because they are considered to have been written off by a political force that wants to sanctify Islamic values in Bugis society. An example of this is the belief that the Bugis community should not use excessive rituals that promote their specific culture when they are Muslim. So if one is Muslim, then they must return to true, fundamental Muslim teachings. This is what restricts them from performing the traditional rituals as the role of Bisu. They are looking for a safe space in their respective places. If they meet others who play masculine roles or who play feminine roles, then they have chalalai or chalabai in their community. But out in public, they still play a role assigned at birth. For example, if he was born as a man with a penis, he will pretend to be a cisgender male. And if she was born with a vagina, then she will pretend to be a cisgender female. This role is played so that they are safe, so they must find a secure space to play their true roles. So this was not really understood by the common people at the time. But nothing has changed. Gender diversity still exists in Bugis. This is still understood. So, now that the regime in power for 32 years is starting to disappear, and democracy is starting to be elevated, people have returned to understanding their culture again. Where is our culture? The ones that were Urane, Makunrai, Chalalai, Chalabai and Bisu have begun to be found again. It is also necessary to be grateful for the culture that is performed on the theatre stage or music stage, which brings back the value of gender diversity into the art space or in the intellectual space on campus where we are exploring it again. Various researchers have come to express, for example, 
that at first they were only looking for Bisu, but with studying Bisu they were finally able to find this gender diversity in Bugis. Some people write in books about this and do extensive research, and there are also those who just perform it abroad, and finally it is known by the whole world that in Bugis there is gender diversity. So, for us, women who are part of a social movement or women's rights movement, this must be fun for us. Why? Because other people often see feminists as teaching from the West, their thoughts from the West, even though feminists have their roots in Indonesia. So feminists do not always come from the West. But we can also explore feminists from our local culture, well, feminist values, for example, talking about women's leadership with gender diversity, and we can recognize women's leadership in our country. So, female leaders have physically existed in South Sulawesi. For example, there have been many queens that ruled the kingdoms here. So if we want to see history, there is a lot of history in Bugis, Tana Bugis, or Tana Makassar, or Tana Mandar, because they have women leaders. The question now is, is this feminist? Yes, this is feminist. Because we learn to dig into our culture, where women can become leaders, become women as leaders. In Indonesia, during the Dutch colonial era, we can see Indonesians play the gender roles that women existed only in the realm of domestic and men in the public sphere. But women can serve in the public sphere with them, being leaders. Thank you so much. That was such a... Of what I understood of that, that was fantastic. So my final question is, what do you want people from outside of your community and outside Indonesia to understand about Bugis gender diversity? What I hope is that the world will know there is gender diversity in Indonesia. Actually, not only from Bugis, but there are other cultures from Indonesia that also talk about gender diversity. Although Bugis is documented all over the world and written down and then researched, it is scrutinized to become study material at universities or performed on world stages such as La Galigo or, for example, like Indonesians performing artwork outside of Indonesia, then they introduce the meaning of bisu, then they introduce gender diversity so people can learn. Many people can find it in Indonesia. Now, this is what I want. What I want to say to people around the world is that this is what gender expression is about. Gender roles don't have to be determined by sexual orientation, and gender roles can be performed roles. For example, men don't always have to be outside the house, and women do not always have to be inside the house. Because placing everything in a rigid box, a man who becomes a cisgender male or a woman who becomes a cisgender female, don't have to be heterosexual or homosexual. They can choose their own place they want to be, and people shouldn't really have to know. Because my sexual orientation is my privacy. Also, we shouldn't generalize sexual orientation, gender, or gender roles. They can be different and fluid. If I feel that I'm a woman, I don't have to be feminine. I'm female, but I'm not feminine. I'm masculine or I'm androgynous. I can play that role like I want. So, I can be androgynous and female, or masculine, or I can be feminine. Even though I am a woman who is born with a vagina, I play my social role as masculine or androgynous. The issue of sexual orientation does not need to be discussed because it is my private matter and so on. But there is no box in this world that has to be the same. 
but the box can be melted into something as diverse as the various genders. Fantastic. You know, thank you so very much for your time. Speaking to a Bugis person directly, particularly somebody who has been involved in gender at a professional level as Pino has, opens doors to understanding how gender, spirituality and power are inextricably interlinked, not only in the Bugis community, but in communities around the world. Before this conversation with Pino, I myself was unfamiliar with the concept of a meta-gender, a gender identity which transcends and is abstracted from both the concepts of masculinity and femininity, but also from the power dynamics and relations present between those two concepts. Of course, the idea of disentangling oneself from matters of gender and sexuality in order to ascend to a state of piety or religious purity is not new or confined exclusively to Bugis culture. We see this in the clerical and monastic celibacy often practiced within Catholicism and Buddhism. We see divinity associated with the third gender or third sex hijras under Hinduism. We see gender-variant individuals within various Pacific Island communities being both ridiculed and respected as spiritual intermediaries. However, most communities do not believe that one must be absolved from gendered power relations in order to convene with their god. Christianity, amongst other major organized religions, has thrived on the organization of power through patriarchal practices. Men have continually been placed at the top of religious hierarchies, and through this, been provided with avenues into politics and economics that facilitate exploitation and the enforcement of unjust and unequal social norms. The United States, for example, is a place within which religion and state overlap, and within that overlap, we see the normalized subordination of non-males, predominantly women. There is perhaps something to admire in how the Bugis believe that gendered power relations have no place in their spiritual practices. As we have discussed over the past three episodes covering gender and sexuality variants in Indonesia, any presumed deviation from a gender binary and heteronormativity is often misconstrued, both by conservative Indonesians and outsiders, as a sign of unwelcome modernity or Western influence. In fact, what is occurring in Indonesia as these gender and sexuality variant communities push for visibility and recognition is the process of re-territorialization. If we were to define de-territorialization as the separation of social, cultural and political practices from a location, then re-territorialization would describe the reclamation of these social, cultural and political practices within that location re-establishing one's territory through facets of their community or country's identity which have been lost, dispersed, or removed. Sometimes, deterritorialization is passive and presents itself through migration and the sharing of cultural practices. Sociologist Hill Manuel Hernandez has argued that deterritorialization is a feature of cultural globalization and globalized modernity, but it is pertinent that we consider how gender and sexuality variant practices in Indonesia were impacted by Dutch colonialism. Framing all deterritorialization as a feature of modernity implies that progress is made through communities losing many of their identifying features and differences, and, in this space left by that loss, having imposed what the globalizing powers presume to be modern practices and norms. 
deterritorialization through colonial practices paves the way for whitewashing and the erasure of indigenous histories and customs. Re-territorializing Indonesia as a place of gender and sexuality variance through media, theater, and education is an act of resistance and traditionalism. Re-establishing Indonesia as a diverse and inclusive country in its recovery from Dutch colonialism. When we understand how the Bugis have fostered this harmonious community of gender, sexuality, and sex inclusivity, we can no longer subscribe to the misapprehension that Indonesia, or any country in Southeast Asia, are merely following the West's lead in the queer rights movement. The West does not pave the way towards recognizing and establishing gender and sex diversity. We are simply learning to unpack gender and sex like the Bugis did many centuries ago. If anything, when Pino talks about melting the box of gender, she is talking about boxes which have been imposed predominantly by the West through colonialism. The gender and sexual landscape of Indonesia is changing, and this change is a product of both desired modernity and traditionalist beliefs and values. There may be much yet that needs to change, before gender and sexuality variant individuals have the rights and freedoms they deserve, but if one thing is evident from our time spent in this heterogeneous and complex country, it is this. The West may yet have some catching up to do before we too are capable of honoring and recognizing our gender variant citizens as we should. And if we were to take a leaf out of any community's book, perhaps we could stand to learn a little about inclusivity diversity and respect from the Buganese of Indonesia. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay and scripted and produced by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to our interviewee, Pino, for her contributions to this episode, our interpreters, June and I, and a special shout out to my postgraduate anthropology lecturer, Nick Long, who first taught me about this community several years ago now, and help nurture my passion for matters of international gender variance. As this project leaves Indonesia behind to continue in the United Kingdom, I want to take a moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who have supported this project traveling 37,526 miles around the world. That's 1.5 times around the circumference of the Earth. During this time, we have had the fortune to hear such incredible stories from inspiring individuals across the globe, and we're nowhere near finished. With episodes in the UK and Ireland still to come in this season, we're excited to keep bringing you more case studies exploring what queer culture and history looks like on a local and global level. If you're not a patron and you want to contribute to travel costs, production costs, or just buying the Slash Queer team a cup of tea, you can visit the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Additionally, we are still selling our first set of Slash Queer merch, with the Slash Queer logo available in various pride flag colours across t-shirts, mugs, face masks, and more. You can check us out at slashqueer.threadless.com, and on top of all that, if you fancy throwing us a few pennies as a one-off donation, you can donate to the Slash Queer Research Project at coffee.com forward slash slash queer. That's ko ficom forward slash slash queer. If you can't give anything right now, a like, a subscription, or a share 
also means the world to us. We're just happy to have you on board. This episode was recorded on location in Jakarta, Indonesia. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer, or email us at slashqueer at outlook.com. As we have said from the very start of this all, in the meantime, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.